Well, let's pray for the Lord's help as we read his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that now you would revive us by your spirit, that same spirit that inspired your word to be written and uh, given to us, Lord. Uh, We thank you so much uh, that it is able uh, to make us wise, the salvation in Christ, your anointed. And we do pray, Lord, now that we would be responding to it rightly, uh, humbly, Uh, Lord, that we would be believing uh, what uh, you are saying and we would be responding in obedience for your glory. Amen. This morning, we are going to study one of the greatest power struggles of the Old Testament. It's part of a much, much bigger story. So before we look at the minor details, we're just going to have a quick um, recap of what we've seen so far in 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 8, we remember Israel's wickedness at requesting a king like all the other nations had. Now, Israel were God's chosen people. They were supposed to be distinct from all the other nations. They were supposed to be marked out as his special people. But they had rejected God as their ruler. They had rejected his law. And they said, no, we want a king like everybody else has. So after many warnings, God gave them the kind of king that they wanted. One like all the other nations had. His name was Saul. He was a handsome guy, taller than any other. A bit like Andrew. I'm only kidding. But he was not a good king for Israel. He disobeyed God. He led the people into sin. So God rejected him as his king over his people. And instead... He chose David, a young shepherd boy. Now, David wasn't as tall and as handsome and as good-looking as Saul. He didn't have that same great physique. But he was a man after God's own heart. Last week, we saw how the Lord granted David an incredible victory over the greatest uh, soldier of Israel's greatest enemy, the Philistines, when he defeated Goliath. At the time of battle, King Saul... Supposedly the leader of Israel's armies was cowering in his tent. Well, chapters 18 to 20, what we're looking at this morning, continue on from that scene. They focus on Saul's response to David as he gradually comes to realise that this shepherd boy and saviour of God's people was God's newly chosen king. In other words, he was Saul's replacement. So please come back with me to chapter 18, and I'll read from verse 1. Our first point, David's fame, Saul's response. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him, as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armour and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 
Well, now that David has slain uh, the giant Goliath, his position in Israel has changed quite a bit. For a start, he was now in Saul's service permanently. Beforehand, he had just been Saul's armor bearer, uh, coming to him when he needed him and then going back home. But now he was with Saul for good, a permanent servant. And it seems that Jonathan, Saul's son, had taken a liking to David. We're told that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. He loved him so much that he made a covenant or a pact, a treaty with David. Uh, Now, we're not told exactly what this covenant contains. It'll be hinted at a little bit later. But what is important is we take notice of what this covenant was marked by. Jonathan gave David his robe and his armaments, the very things that pointed Jonathan out as the royal heir to the throne of Israel. Now, whether Jonathan knew at the time what God had promised to David about being the chosen one, his anointed, well, we don't know. And it doesn't actually matter. What is important is that we see an allusion to David's role in the future of God's plans for his people. Jonathan the heir to the throne of Israel, of God's people, is handing over his royal status symbols to David. Now Samuel had told Saul a few chapters back that the kingdom would be taken from him. And here is an evidence of that handover in status. It was not Saul's son Jonathan, but David, who would be the future king of Israel. But as we'll see very soon, this transition of kingship was not going to be a smooth one. Well, now that David is in Saul's service, he was put in a position that most suited him. He became a fighter. He was really, really good at it. He had success wherever he went because the Lord was with him. He was so competent, he was so good at it, that it wasn't long before he was promoted. Saul made David his general. He set him over all of his fighting men. Now, that was a position that traditionally was meant for the king's son. That was actually meant for Jonathan. But no one really minded. Everyone was pleased with David's new position. He was very competent at the job. Even Saul's officers thought it was great. And everything was going so well. David had received honour, status in a surprisingly short amount of time. But then one day, we're told that Saul returns from the front lines after a battle. And as he's approaching the cities of Israel, he hears a great celebration. Singing, tambourines, a group of great jubilation. Now, Saul was probably quite used to this. Uh, He was depicted, he was still seen as the leader of the armies of Israel, and so he would be praised when Israel won a victory, even if he hadn't actually the last time it was David who won the victory against Goliath. But when he hears what the women are singing, when he hears the praise, he realises, hang on, they're singing something quite new. Something he hadn't heard before. Something that got him really angry. It's down in chapter 18, verse 7. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Well, Saul's opinion of David switches in an instant. He considered David a close, powerful ally, but now he sees David as a challenger to his throne. 
David's amazing success was no longer pleasing to Saul. Instead, he became jealous of David's fame. And it's not long before Saul's hostility towards David comes to the surface. The day after Saul hears this praise of David, the day after he becomes jealous, we're told that an evil spirit rushes upon him. Now David resumes his duty as he'd done before. David would sometimes come to Saul and play his lyre and that would calm Saul down when he was under the influence of an evil spirit. But this time, instead of responding to music by calming down, he does something very different. He hurls a spear at David twice. Uh, now we know it wasn't just the evil spirit that was at work here. Well, we read in verse 11, Saul thought, I will pin David to the wall. Saul's jealousy had led to murderous rage. And when Saul's first attempt to kill David had failed, he was very, very afraid. Because it had dawned on him that God was with David. Saul was very, very afraid and very very jealous but Saul knew that getting rid of David was not going to be easy although he hated David intensely for all this fame he was gathering the rest of Israel all the rest of God's people loved him really much very much there was no way that Saul could remove David publicly and get away with it so in verses 13 to 30 we have Saul's passive attempts to remove David. And this is where we see his cloak and dagger tactics. His plans to get rid of David without being seen as the one directly responsible for it. So our second heading, Saul's passive attempts against David. Uh, three attempts in all, uh, in all. The first one is in verse 13. Starts at verse 13. Saul simply sends David out of his presence. Maybe his hope was that if David was far away from the recognised king of Israel, well, people would just lose interest in him. He would just become yesterday's news. But David's fame had nothing to do with his proximity to Saul, or his rank in the army for that matter. It had come to David through his success, because the Lord was with him. He was God's anointed one. And that was something that Saul could not change, no matter how hard he tried. So David continues to have every success in all that he does. And Saul grows in his fear of him. Because his scheme that was meant to marginalise David had actually done the very opposite. Israel and Judah loved David all the more because of his success in leading them. Strike one for Saul. Saul's first plan to get rid of David quietly fails. But then Saul thought of a second way to remove David and avoid the blame. He remembers that the man who gained victory over Goliath, who killed Goliath, would also win his daughter's hand in marriage. Uh, that was what had been promised to the victor. Saul sees this as a cunning opportunity to rid him of his rival. All he does is just add an extra clause to the contract. Okay, So you've killed Goliath, well done. You can have my daughter as your bride, but you've just got to do one other thing. He says to David, 
David, you can have my daughter Merab, only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. Well, it sounds fair, doesn't it? The king is giving his daughter to David. So that's a, that's a fair way to respond. But Saul's intentions in his request are far from fair. What Saul really hoped was that David would fall at the hand of the Philistines when he was fighting for Saul. Not very nice at all. Well, David responds very honourably. Who am I? What is my family and my father's clan in Israel that I should become, I should become the king's son-in-law? Although David had become very, very famous, he still came from very humble beginnings. So when it came to the time when David would have married Mareb, she is given instead to another man. Strike two for Saul. Second plan failed. But then Saul finds out that his other daughter, Michal, loves David very much. Well, Saul was very pleased at this news. He had failed twice, but now here comes along another opportunity. He hoped that Michal would be a snare to David, that the Philistines might focus their efforts on killing him rather than Saul. Now, last time he had offered his David, he had offered his daughter. David refused. <coughs> so this time he decides to enlist some help. He tells his officials to affirm what he says to David in private. But David still refuses, believing he is a poor man of little known. Saul doesn't give up so easily this time, though. He thinks, okay, if I can't have David killed through marrying my daughter, I'll have him killed by trying to earn her instead. So another message is passed to David. The only price that the king desires for his daughter is 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, I know that's a bit gross for us today, but in David's day, it was a simple way of representing how many of the enemy you had killed in battle. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, David had been set an achievable bride price, and so he and his men rise to the challenge. And as ever, David is incredibly successful. So successful that far from dying in the midst of battle as Saul so hoped for, actually the very opposite thing happened. David was so successful with his men that he killed twice the number of Philistines, 200, not 100. They had obviously got a, a bit zealous along the way. And as a result, no doubt begrudgingly, Saul gives Michal to David as his wife. Strike three for Saul. Third plan failed. So where's Saul's scheming got him? Well, we're told he was even more afraid of David, seeing even more clearly the Lord was with him. And now his daughter was on David's side too. Not only that, but David's fame throughout Israel had grown all the more. He exceeded the abilities of all, of all of Saul's servants. He was the nation's favourite, his name being held in high esteem. Saul's scheming had got him absolutely nowhere. He's even in more of a mess than when he started. So does he repent? Does he accept David as the Lord's chosen one, receiving him willingly and humbly? No. 
Saul became even more bitter and fearful, counting David as his enemy from that day. So our third heading, Saul's active attempts against David. Saul's active attempts. Come with me to chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Well, gone was the time for sneaky tactics. Gone was the time for cloak and dagger. Saul had enough of devising plans that tried to shift the blame if David was to be get rid of. As far as he was concerned, David had to be stopped in his tracks. He had to go. So he tells his own son, Jonathan, and all of his servants, I want David dead now. Everything's out in the open. But there was something Saul hadn't taken into account, possibly because he didn't know about it, and possibly because he underestimated it. And that was the strength of Jonathan's love for David. On hearing this request, Jonathan would have remembered the covenant he had made with David back in chapter 18. There was no way he could let his father kill him. So as soon as he's gone out of that meeting, he rushes to David and tells him, My dad is out to get you. And Jonathan decides he is going to get to the bottom of this and then report back to David his findings. So later, he speaks with Saul in verse 4, chapter 19, verse 4. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood? by killing David without cause. Well, Saul seems to listen to Jonathan. He vowed that as surely as the Lord lived, David would not be killed. So Jonathan reports this news to David, as he said he would, and no doubt David is very relieved. It would have been quite a scary thing to have a death sentence hanging over you from the king of Israel. He returns into service uh, under Saul, and we're told that war broke out again against the Philistines. Uh, we're not told how long this battle, these battles went on for. I'm guessing it probably went on for quite a while. And during this episode, David's success would no doubt have gone even higher. His fame with Israel and Judah would have grown. And because of it, Saul's jealousy of David was no doubt reawakened. So we have a repetition of what happened Back in chapter 18, Saul got jealous again. An evil spirit from the Lord took advantage of his wicked disposition again. And Saul makes another attempt on David's life. Well, David doesn't stick around this time, he flees. But Saul's jealousy does not subside. He tells his messengers, go pursue him. Now, this little bit reminds me of James Bond films. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a big James Bond fan. The plots are usually the same. Some really bad guy is doing something terrible and has to be stopped, so James Bond is sent in to save the day. But the supervillain never goes up against Bond at the start. It doesn't begin with the supervillain trying to kill Bond. He sends his henchman in first and then turns up to finish the job. Well, Saul had henchmen too, and he gives them a command. Go to David's place and watch them. Then I will come and kill him in the morning. 
Well, now comes along protector number two. First it was Jonathan, Saul's son. Now it's Michal, Saul's daughter, who is now David's wife. She was convinced that if David did not flee that very night, he was a dead man. No question about it. She had a very good intuition. So she lets David out by a window, and using some belongings, she makes up a sort of mannequin, puts it on the bed, and disguises it to make it look like David was sleeping. Well, the guards arrive, and they demand to see David, and Michal replies, Don't say, he's sick, he's sick. So they return to Saul, who isn't at all satisfied with the answer. A sick man can still be killed. It's not as if there's a sense of morality in this whole thing anyway. So the messengers return. After they forcibly entered David's house, they realize they've been tricked. David's not there. Well, Saul is not best pleased with his daughter when he finds out that news. There was every chance that his murderous rage could have turned on her. So she has to lie to her father, saying that David would have killed her had she not let him go. Now, while all of this is going on, David's out on the road. He's fleeing for his life. He arrives at Ramah, knowing that his ally Samuel was there. Samuel gets the news. He's, of course, concerned as well. And he takes David immediately to Naoth, which means tents or, or dwellings. They would have been on the outskirts of Ramah, of the city. He must have thought uh, that there was safety in numbers. There would have been a great group of prophets there with Samuel. And it would have meant good fellowship for David as well. It's something he certainly could have done with at this time. But it's not long before Saul's henchmen uh, turn up to capture David. They were in for a bit of a shock, though. As soon as they advance on the company of prophets, they're overcome by the Spirit of the Lord. They begin prophesying, rendering them totally useless for their mission. So Saul sends another batch, maybe even more advanced this time, and they go for David, and they start prophesying. Same thing happens. Saul thinks, okay, third time lucky. So sends the best he's got, probably the elite commando unit of Israel in. But they can't even get close. As soon as they try to, they start prophesying as well. Well, if you want something done properly, do it yourself. It's time for the real, bad, real baddie to go and finish the job. So Saul heads up for Ramah himself. Now, when he sent his henchmen in to take care of David, they managed at least to get to Ramah before they were prevented by the Spirit. But not Saul. The Spirit caused him to prophesy on the road. When he got there, he stripped off his royal attire and lay naked for a whole day and night, prophesying. That was a very shameful thing to do, especially for the king of Israel. Saul had sent his best men three times to kill David, and they had failed. He went himself. He failed. Once again, Saul's jealousy has got him nowhere. Rather than killing David, he's just made a fool of himself. I wonder if we are a bit like Saul sometimes. Uh, Do we get jealous very easily when we see other people, our peers, succeeding? If someone's doing particularly well in the office, at work, or maybe even at university, in the studies, uh, rather than thanking God for them, do do we instead envy them? Say, I want to be like that, it's not fair? Or what about here, at SMAC? Someone excels in a particular part or type of service. And as we view them, we forget that God has gifted us differently 
according to his good will, for his good purpose, and we are here to serve him together, we forget all of that, and instead, we become very jealous. Brothers and sisters, we must not do that. It's a clear sign of self-centered living, just like Saul. It's something that our Lord Jesus has taught us to die to. We are to live to serve him and others, not our own glory, to seek the betterment of others, not ourselves. Well, back to our passage. Uh, We're now in chapter 20, and by this time, David is pretty annoyed. He had every right to be, of course. He hasn't done anything wrong. He has acted honorably, despite his life being threatened time and time again. And he wants to know why. Why is Saul so keen to kill me? What has he done to deserve such hostility? Well, he vents his frustration to Jonathan. Come with me to chapter 20, verse 1. And David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? But Jonathan isn't anywhere near as worried as David. Because as far as he knew, Saul had no plans to harm him. After all, Jonathan believes Saul told him everything. He thought his father does nothing without letting him know. But David knew better. He knew that what was going on in Saul's head. He might not have known why Saul was trying to kill him, but he knew Saul's tactics. He knew Saul's methods. So he says to Jonathan in verse 3, Your father knows well that I have found favour in your eyes, And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Well, Jonathan still isn't convinced. He didn't want to be. He knew the ramifications if David's words were true. Either his close relationship with David would be threatened, or he would be alienated from his own father, Saul. So Jonathan offers to help David in finding out his father's true intentions towards him. Our third heading, David tests Saul. Well, the following day was not going to be an ordinary day for Israel, we're told. It was the start of the new moon festival. And this gave David the opportunity he needed to confirm that Saul was really out to get him. If David were missing from the dinner table during the festival... His absence would be noticed, especially by the king. So he tells Jonathan to give an excuse for him and then judge his father's response. If Saul's reply was favourable, then David would be fine. He'll be just fine. But if Saul became angry, then his intentions towards David would be really clear. They would be murderous. And David would be in great danger. Well, David goes on to make a second request. Should it be found that he is guilty of sinning against Saul in some way, that Saul's actions towards him are actually justified, he wants Jonathan to carry out the justice against him, to kill him. Jonathan still can't believe what he's hearing. He is still adamant that there are no bad intentions on his father's part. But if there were any truth in the matter, Jonathan calls God as his own witness that he would tell David no matter what. He also pleads with David that if his own house is found to be his enemy, 
that David would show them mercy. You see, it was commonplace for an entire family line to be purged when there was a switch of monarchy. Jonathan knew that if David was to take the place of Saul one day, his own life and his, the life of his family could be forfeit too. And then Jonathan says something quite shocking. It's in verse 16. He says, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. David has just told Jonathan that his father was out to kill him and that he had no just reason to do it. And now Jonathan is asking that the Lord himself repay anyone for wishing David harm to punish David's enemies of which his own father could be one. Well, they renew their covenants with one another, swearing their love for each other. And then Jonathan told David how he would communicate this important message as to his father's intentions. On the third day of the festival, David was to hide in the same place where he hid when Jonathan spoke to Saul back in chapter 19. It was obviously a pretty good hiding place. Once David was behind the stone heap, Jonathan would shoot three arrows to the side of it. And then he would get one of his attendants, a young boy, to go and fetch them for him, these arrows. And as the young man ran to get the arrows, Jonathan will either shout, The arrows are behind you! Which will indicate, well, David is safe, he's just fine. Or, the arrows are beyond you! Which will mean David is in great danger. Okay, they had their plan. They had settled any issues that might arise. If Saul, if Saul was found guilty of sinning against David if David's allegations were true. And so they waited. David hid, and Jonathan returns to the palace. A day passes, and soon enough, it's dinner time. Saul, Abner, and Jonathan were all there around the table. There was no doubt an eerie and awkward silence. David was missing, of course. But Saul doesn't make any remark on the first day. He just figures David has accidentally gone and done something ritually unclean which meant that by Israelite law, he wasn't allowed to attend the meal. It would have been a common occurrence. There were many things, some even outside of human control, that could make a man unclean. But then the second day comes round. David's still missing. Saul's getting worried. Two days in a row, something's going on. Many thoughts are racing through Saul's mind. What could David be up to? Is he planning a coup? Whatever it is, it can't be good, he thinks. So he turns to Jonathan, his son, and asks him cautiously, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan gives the excuse. Verse 28, chapter 20, verse 28. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now have I found favour in your eyes. Let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Saul explodes. He accuses Jonathan of being a traitor, choosing David over his own father. He scolds him, saying that as long as David is alive, your kingdom will never, ever, ever be established. He demands Jonathan to bring David to him that very moment that he might kill him. Well, Jonathan's not uncertain anymore. There's no doubt in his mind that his father is bent on shedding innocent blood, on killing David. He screams back at him, Why should David be put to death? What has he done? 
But Saul's lost it. Overcome with jealousy and rage, he hurls a spear at his own son. That was the final straw for Jonathan. He rose from the table in great anger and ate no food that day. And we read that he grieved for David and was ashamed of the way that his father had treated him. And as he promised, Jonathan went out to the field the next day. He shot the arrows and shouted to the boy, Is not the arrow beyond you? And then added the words, Quick, hurry, do not stay. Well, they were clearly meant for David, not the boy. As soon as the boy had taken Jonathan's weapons, he left. But David didn't. He stayed. He broke protocol. He came out from behind the stone heap and fell to the ground, bowing three times. Now, this wasn't part of the original plan. David was to receive Jonathan's signal and then run for his life. But I guess it was a little bit too much for him. David and Jonathan loved each other as themselves. We're told they kissed one another and wept greatly, David grieving the most. As far as we can tell from the account of 1 Samuel, this was the last time Jonathan and David would ever meet. It would have been agony for both of them, as though they were losing their own brother. But Jonathan knew that David didn't have long. His father would not be slow to act. Saul would be hot on his heels. He reaffirmed that the Lord would be between them, between his offspring and David's forever. And then David flees, and Jonathan goes back into the city. What a tragic account. God's anointed one, the true king of Israel, having to escape for his life. Hunted by a wicked, jealous king who sought only his own ends and the establishment of his own kingdom. But this was not to be the last anointed one to endure such misery through no fault of his own. David's exile at the hands of a jealous ruler points forward to the experience of our Lord Jesus. As David suffered, so did Jesus. Like David, Jesus was the anointed one, confirmed by God's Spirit at his baptism. He was God's chosen king for the whole world, not just Israel, the whole world. But like David, he too experienced opposition from the powers of his day. We read about it in that account we had for our New Testament reading of the Pharisees and Jesus. We saw how the Pharisees were jealous of him. They saw how he was performing great signs and gaining the affections of the Jewish people, the people that used to look up and admire them. And they feared they would lose their place in Israel as leaders, a place of prominence, a place of great status. They did not care about serving God. Like Saul, they cared about their own reputations. It was the love of men, not the fear of God, that guided them. As far as they were concerned, Jesus had to go. So they drew up their plans against him. They disguised their jealousy by saying, well, well, Jesus' death was for the sake of the people, for the sake of the Jewish nation. They didn't realize the truth in their words. And as a result, Jesus could not move openly in public areas. We read in John 11:54, he no longer walked openly among them but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. But Jesus was far greater than David, who foreshadowed him. 
He was God's own son. He was the true king of kings who would rule all nations. Yet the Pharisees, with the help of wicked men, did succeed in killing him. He went to the cross at the hands of those he had come to save. They contend him to death for selfish and cowardly reasons. But God worked through such utter wickedness to bring us our salvation. As Jesus died on that cross, he experienced the punishment we deserved for rejecting God, for rejecting him as our king, for rebelling against our creator rather than submitting to him as we should, for shutting him out of our lives and instead setting ourselves up as little gods. Three three days later, Jesus rose again, showing that his sacrifice had accomplished what he had promised, that through him we could have the hope of eternal life. Through him we could know and love and serve God as we were made to do, no longer fearing God's anger against our rebellion, our sin. Jesus is God's true king, the true anointed one. He is now exalted to the highest place as we sang in our first song this morning. And on his return, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord over all. What about us? So many people in our world today uh, act like Saul. Uh, They are jealous of Jesus and resist his rightful rule over their lives. They think they can reject him and get away with it. But just as we will see next week, like Saul, they won't. Those who reject God's anointed one, his chosen king, will have to answer for it one day. Jonathan knew that. He knew that to stand against David was absolute folly. He made David swear mercy to himself and his descendants, that there might be hope for him and his family. He took security in God's anointed. So who will we be? Will we be like Jonathan, handing over our rulership of life to God's king, trusting in his mercy and his forgiveness? Jonathan actually deserved his throne. Yet he gave it up, realising David was more worthy. We don't even deserve the thrones that we set up for ourselves. We might pretend that we are gods, that we have the right to rule our own lives. But it's a lie. There is one king. There is one anointed one. There is one anointed, uh, sorry, one Lord of all. And we must submit to him. But Saul wouldn't do it. He was jealous. He cared more for the love of his people, the more for the love of his own reputation, and the establishment of his earthly, temporal kingdom. He tried his best to defeat God's chosen king. And he got nowhere. He got as far as we'll get if we reject God's chosen king, Jesus. Things might seem fine at the moment. We might be quite happy living as earthly kings of our lives, rejecting God. But one day, that true king is going to return. And then there will be no more room for pretending. Those who had rejected Jesus as their Lord, he will reject on that final day, casting them out of his presence forever. And those who have trusted in his mercy to us on the cross and lived with him as the Lord of their lives will be welcomed into his kingdom. We must not reject God's anointed as Saul did but rather trust in Jesus' death for us and honour him 
with our whole lives. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you that you have shown us uh, the seriousness of jealousy this morning, especially when it is a jealousy for the rulership of our own lives, uh, rather than, uh, Lord, honouring your anointed one, uh, trusting in him and living with him as king. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be doing that uh, this week as we look forward to his return and spending eternity with him. In Jesus' name, amen.